Hey, church family. Nice to see faces and half faces, and nice to know that there are people on screens uh, on the other side of this. I, I'm glad to be here. One of my favorite things, and you'll find out why later on, is getting positive feedback. <laughs> I like it. I don't know if you do, I really do. Um, I also like getting positive feedback about my sermons. Uh, but even more than that, I like getting positive feedback about other people's sermons. And this last couple of weeks has been great because, because we've been looking at Jesus and me and, and Cindy and Richard delivered amazing service sermons. They really did. And I got a lot of feedback. It was so great to hear from people. To say, John, that sermon was amazing, uh, well done, and I'm going, it wasn't me, it was them. But, but it was just such a positive more than usual, kind of, wow, that was really true and, and, and significant, and thank you. And so, you know, sermons aren't just supposed to be something you hear, they are something you're supposed to do. And so I thought, you know, it would be good this Sunday for last one in the series, we just, we just watch both of those sermons quickly. Okay, we'll play them at double speed so that, and we can just watch them and then we can go out and do them. Easy. Except I wish it was that easy. I do wish it was that easy. But my experience is it's not. It's not. And so this morning, I, I, I want to you know, look at those two fantastic sermons. Richard and Cindy were awesome. But what am I going to do about it? And this sermon isn't about what are you going to do about it. This sermon is about what should I do about it? What should John Ben do about it? Because the truth is, nothing changes until something changes. That's the truth, isn't it? Nothing changes. And so me simply knowing some stuff and coming away from a sermon going, that was incredible, unless something changes in my life, I'm going to stay where I was in terms of my relationship with God. And, and those sermons told me that I can't stay where I am in my relationship with God. I have to, I have to move. And so, so this morning, I, I want to preach about John Ben putting those two sermons into practice. I want to talk about, about me. And, and I hope that as I talk about me, you'll think about you. And you'll ask yourself some of the same questions. And so I want to unpack why it's a struggle for me to, to put Jesus first in my life. Why it's a struggle to have a relationship with Jesus that is the most important relationship I have. Now don't get me wrong, I spend time with Jesus. I love having a relationship with Jesus. But, but, but there's more. There's definitely more for me. And I know there's more for you. And, and I want that, and I want to pursue that. Because I think if you have a group of people who say the most significant relationship I could ever have is my relationship with Jesus, and, and, and the relationship I want to be the deepest of any relationship I can ever have, and it's with Jesus. I mean, if you're thinking about transformation, whether it's a personal transformation or the transformation of our church or, the, or our church transforming the world, that's what's at the key. That's what's at the very center of that. And so I have to do it. And so as I, as I talk and unpack a little bit, it, 
it's only fair for me to tell you a little bit more about me than you may already know. Because, because who I am is part of the struggle with making Jesus the number one relationship in my life. Who I am is part of the struggle of putting Jesus at the very center. So you know me, I'm, I'm John, I'm a pastor. Um, you may know that I have a family and that I love my family. You may know that um, one of my mottos is you're never too old to have a happy childhood. Um, you may know that I quite like coffee. You may, um, you may know that I like to tease people. You may know a lot of things about me. One of the things you may not know about me, unless you've been into my office, is that I'm not a perfectionist. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> yeah, and I tidied up before I took that photograph. I'm not a perfectionist. My life is not ordered like that. And so when somebody like Cindy says a very true thing, that you must get your life in the right order, you must put Jesus first, I'm like, ugh, I'm not good with putting things into order. And so I'm already on a back foot here. But, but I want to tell you something else that I've discovered in my journey, in my relationship with God and myself over the last few years. With the help of some really good friends and a psychologist, I actually discovered I am a perfectionist. I'm just not that kind of perfectionist. I'm a relational perfectionist. I want all my relationships to be good. I want everybody to like me all the time. I want people just to believe me and respect me and I want them to be happy with me and I want to be happy with them. Now, part of being a relationship, relational perfectionist is lack of, I like relationships. I love connecting with people. And that's why I love standing around and talking and getting to know people, it's good. But when you're a relational perfectionist, relationships cause you stress. You, you worry about, is that person happy with me? And, 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 and did I say something wrong over there? And, and here's the problem, the deeper the relationship gets, the easier it is to not be perfect anymore because there's just more and more. And so classic relational perfections tend to stay on the surface of relationships. They have lots of relationships, but few that are very deep. Now, fortunately, God has given me some really deep relationships. But I'm just trying to unpack in my, to you to understand some things about me as to why I struggle to always put Jesus first and make him the most important relationship and the deepest relationship in my life. And I want you to think about yourself in this moment and say, what is it about me? You may not be like me. You may be one of those people that doesn't care what other people think. I'm a little jealous about you sometimes. One of those people who's like, I don't care. Sometimes I judge you, and sometimes I'm jealous of you. You know, that's how we are as human beings. And so, so I want to take you on a journey this morning with John, the relational perfectionist, as I talk about some of the things that I believe I need to change and journey with so that I can be taking steps forward to having Jesus as the number one relationship in my life 
all the time and, and being the deepest possible relationship that I have. Because you see, I do believe it is possible. Perfection is not possible this side of heaven. But the journey towards perfection is because Jesus has made us perfect. And I want to take as my model this idea that you can have a perfect relationship and a complicated life from the life of Jesus. You see, because the truth is Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, are in a perfect relationship all the time. And it's not some kind of airy-fairy relationship. It's very real. They submit to each other. They obey each other. They, they love each other. And it's easy to go, well, they're God. Except Jesus came to earth, and he became a human being. And even in his humanity, he had at the center, his relationship with the Father and the Spirit is the most central relationship in his life. And so I want to unpack a little bit what the perfect relationship and a complicated life look like. So we go to Matthew chapter 14, which is kind of the text we're going to use mostly, but we're going to be going to quite a few places in the Gospels this morning. Matthew chapter 14. That, that, that chapter starts with, with John the Baptist being beheaded. So it's a story where, where, where John gets executed for, for telling the truth. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. There's every reason to believe they were very close. Um, their, their moms were close. They were on the same mission, the one to announce the Messiah, the other to be the Messiah. There can be no doubt that the two of them were close to each other in relationship. And Jesus gets the message that his cousin John has just been murdered, has just been executed, has just had his head cut off. What does he do? How does he react? And I'm so glad to read his reaction because it helps me Know that sometimes when I face a thing like that, I react properly too. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. I need to be alone. Somebody I love has just been killed. I need to be alone. Oh, how I wish it stopped there, but it doesn't. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed them, healed those who were ill. Really? My goodness me, what thoughtless people. What demanding, selfish people. Surely, surely not this now. Yes, this now. Jesus wants to spend some time alone. And these people come and they just demand, heal us, do this, do that. <laughs> Does it sound like something that can happen in your life? Sounds like things that we experience every day. And so Jesus puts his mourning on pause. And he ministers to those people. And he performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. 
Uh, and I mean, it's like, you know, at the, they're there all day. The disciples get towards the end of the day. Well, okay, they didn't do this. They did that. And, and they said, Jesus, you've got to send these folks away now because they need food. And Jesus says to them, now you feed <laughs> You feed them. And of course, he performs that miracle. They find five loaves and two fishes. Now, I want to tell you this, that after I've preached two sermons, especially on a hot day like this today, a nap is going to be compulsory for me this afternoon. Okay, it's just compulsory. I'm tired. Imagine the emotional tiredness that Jesus experiences after this fact that he's got to put his morning on, on pause. He performs this miracle. He teaches his people. He ministers. And so he decides, okay, now's the time I need to take the break. Immediately, chapter 14, verse 22, Jesus made his, the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side whilst he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against him. Now, if you're tempted to think that, that Jesus obviously just found a little hill close by to hide behind and quickly just grab a moment with God... If you study the geography of where he was, he didn't just go up a little, stroll up a little copy to get away from people. He actually went up a mountain. He had to climb. He, he wasn't just trying to pack his moment with God into a convenient little spot. He was probably already exhausted, but, but he, 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 he put very specific physical effort into doing what he needed to do. You see, even the Savior of the world, even the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, need to be very intentional and actually do things so that this relationship, this perfect relationship that he had, would continue and grow deeper and be more significant. And so, so I want to, this morning, look at John and say, what are the things that perhaps John needs to do, like Jesus did really intentionally throughout his life, not just in this moment, but if you look at the Gospels all over the place, that will help me take the next step to put Jesus in the center of my, of my life, to make Jesus the number one relationship in my life, and to keep getting deeper and deeper into this most important relationship. Because of who I am, I've chosen to use the word disciplines when I'm talking about making this practical for me. Now, now there was a bit of a debate when we were preparing these messages. Ah, let's not use the word discipline because it may make people feel guilty and lots of us are tired of hearing the word discipline. I am, you know, it's always about discipline. I went to the army. I don't want to use the word discipline. Let's use the word habit or something else. I've chosen the word discipline for myself for a very specific reason. I am epically undisciplined. Trust me, I'm not a perfectionist. I am not self-disciplined. I have to go and get discipline and, and, and somebody else has to help me with it. And so, so that's why I'm using the word discipline. You can use a different word. You can use the word habit or anything. Practice, God's space. Uh, it's, this is my word. 
I hope you can maybe share it with me or f find a better word for yourself. But, but the first discipline that I can see in my life that Jesus practiced regularly that helped make this the most significant and perfect relationship that he had was the discipline of submission. The discipline of submission. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, I know we as human beings really battle to understand how God can listen to himself, you know, and, and submit to himself. But, but, but that's how the Trinity works. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit submit to one another. And so this, this, this idea of submission is central to a, a right relationship with God. A constant reminder that, that, that I'm not here, John, to do what I want to do. I don't exist for my agenda or for your agenda or for somebody else's agenda. I exist for God's agenda. I struggle with this because I have a rebellious nature. Uh, I do. Now, I'm not, I've never been that get-in-your-face rebel. I'm that, uh, have you thought about this rebel? So, you know, oh, we, well, we do it like this. It's obvious. I'm going, no, it's not obvious. Tell me why we do it like that. that that's my kind of rebellion. Different people have different kinds of rebellions. Some people are in-your-face rebels. You know, they're just like, no. And I think often those people are easier to deal with. But, but I do, like you, I want to do my own will. I, I think I'm theologically correct because I think I'm theologically correct. I can't help that. And, and you think you are too because you think you're correct. But I have to be able to go, there is somebody over me. There is somebody I have to submit to. And so I want to tell you some of the ways I put that into practice. One of my favorite ways of reminding myself that I need to submit to God is worship, singing, songs, and nature. Because, because when I sing, I, I, I verbalize how big God is. I mean, that song we sang, that 10,000 armies. Guess what? I can't deal with 10,000 armies. I don't know if you know that, but I can't. But he can, and I need to remind myself. I go out in nature, and I look, and I go, yes, God is definitely superior to me. And so those are two of my practices. One of the practices I've had to introduce to take myself the next step, because those two are natural for me. I just love them. I've always been able to do them. One of the practices of submission that I've had to engage in is interacting with people who are theologically different to me. Uh, it's hard, because they're dumb. Well, <laughs> they're not really, but I, how can they not see it my way? Well, because I'm human and so are they. And so I have to engage, and, and it's hard when you're a people pleaser, because now I want to agree with them, but I don't, and so, so I have to use that as part of my journey, because I, sometimes God makes us, asks us to submit to him by submitting to other people. <laughs> Ay, 
It's much easier to submit to God than it is to other people, isn't it? I don't know about, I find that. But you see, that's one of the issues. And, and I, I want to ask you that question just as I do things to remind myself that I've got to submit to God if I'm going to have the right relationship with Him. What are some of the things you could be doing more to remind yourself how important it is to submit to God? Here's my second discipline. It's the discipline of being alone. The discipline of being alone. Luke 5 verse 15, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and he healed their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So there's two reasons John Ben struggles with being alone. Number one, I'm busy. I'm busy. And my job involves other people. And so, I, 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 you know, it's how it is. And when you're a pastor, sometimes people phone you at three o'clock in the morning. But that's only part of it. The other part of it is John is gregarious. I'm a people pleaser. I love people. I am an extrovert. I just want to hang out with people all the time. And it's hard to be alone and hang out with people all the time. And I know some of you are going, oh, that's not me. I hate people. <laughs> well, okay, I know, you, you know what I mean. But that's me. That's my problem of, of being alone. And so for me, all my life, I've had to force myself. Force is a bit of a strong word, but I've had to say to myself, John, make time alone with God. At the moment, and it's changed often because seasons change. I know that all the, okay, now the young parents, there aren't so many here in the f f early service. I got this, oh, yeah, groan, because there were tons of parents with small kids. When even do you, you, you can't even go to the loo, you know? So, so it changes. We've got to, go, right now, my best alone place is an orange chair in the corner of our bedroom at home, early in the morning. I'm married to a nurse. Nurses usually get up early, but I have a nurse that I'm married to who can doze quite quietly for half an hour after the long clock has gone off. And I go and sit there. And that's right now my best time. But you know what? I have to make myself do it. Because some days I'm like, snooze, snooze. There have been other times in my life where I've done it stretches at a time, eight-day retreats or weekend retreats. But, but however it is, find the season that you're in right now and tell yourself, I need to spend time alone with God. You cannot build a deep, ongoing relationship with any other person if you don't spend time alone with them. It's impossible. It just is. Discipline number three, the discipline of putting Jesus first. I envy you ordered people because you make lists and you go, that's first, that's second, that's third, done. And you just go through your day. Hmm. Is it like, I don't know if it's like that, but it feels to be like that with you disciplined people that I'm a bit jealous of. 
Cindy, you know, that's first, that's second, that's third. I'm going, yeah, that's first. Oh, but, ooh, oh, ooh, ooh, that could go. Uh, and my mind is just everywhere. And so I genuinely struggle to put Jesus first. I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. I've given you one. I'm disorganized. So my lists constantly change. I don't know how to file things. I don't know how to put things in order. Somebody else needs to do it for me. But there's another bigger reason why I struggle to put Jesus first. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser. And so, so I put Jesus first, and I go, Jesus, I know Jesus wants me to do that, but oh, 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 oh that's going to make that person unhappy. So, so let me, <laughs> all the people pleasers know exactly what I'm trying to say right in this moment, don't you? And then I discover, well, I have kind of put Jesus first, but I've modified it a little bit to suit what that person thinks or what I think that person thinks. It, it, of, all, of all the struggles I have in my spiritual journey, this is the biggest one. I'm just telling you from my heart. This thing has been the biggest obstacle in my relationship with Jesus trying to please people. And I've worked on it all my life. And I've loved the fact that over the last few years, God has helped me be much better at it. I'll never fix it, but, but I'm getting there. And, and I've had to do some quite big things to make this change. One of them is on my hand. I know that people often, oh, John, and they always feel awkward because pastors aren't really supposed to have tattoos, are they? I certainly grew up going, it was a sin. It's not a sin to have a tattoo. I could have that conversation afterwards, but it, I've established theologically it's not a sin. So why have I got a tattoo on my hand? Because I need to remind myself constantly that Jesus is more important than people. And so it's, a, it's the Tamil word for I am, which is one of God's names. Isaiah 46, I think, says that God has mine and your names engraved on the palms of his hands. And I thought, what better way for John Ben to remind himself again and again and again that God is more important than people. And so sometimes you don't, you probably don't, but I'll be sitting in a meeting and I'll go, oh yeah, that, that God is more important than people. The, dis the discipline of putting Jesus first. My second last discipline for John is the discipline of obedience. The discipline of obedience. After Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he, he you know, teaches them some lessons about servanthood, and then he says to them, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, here's interesting you may not know about me. I don't find the big obediences hard. Uh, I need to be careful what I say because God listens and then some. But, but for me to have done big things in my life that have felt like scary and dangerous, I, and I'm not, I'm not better than other people in this. It's just that's the nature God has given me. I'm not afraid of personal risk. I'm not afraid of going to weird places and serving God in dangerous. I'm not scared of that. The, the, the obediences I struggle with are the little everyday ones. Those little repeated obediences. 
that kind of get boring after a while, you know what I mean? Which are the obediences you battle with? Are they the big ones or the small ones? But whatever they are, we have to discipline ourselves that now that we know these things, whether they are the big things or the little things, the step after we know things is that we must do them. Think, certainly I grew up in a church tradition that said the way you get close to God is to know lots of things about him to know the Bible and to study scripture. And if you do that, you will become spiritually mature and you'll have a deep relationship with God. That's not true. Well, it's not entirely true. You, of course you have to know somebody. It's no problem for me to buy Colleen a big present or to treat her to something amazing and special. <sighs> but I have to wash the dishes sometimes, eh? Especially like early in the morning. And one of them could have done it last night, you know. Why do I have to flip and do it this morning? But it's the same thing. It's an obedience. It's, it's part of a journey. It, I, I'm not better because I can give her flowers and remember to do that, but but I forget to do the small things. And it's the same with God. We cannot build a deep, lasting relationship with God. I can't. I keep saying us, but this is about me. But perhaps it's about you too. And then there's a final discipline that I need. It's the discipline of friendship. It's the discipline of friendship, which may sound kind of weird coming from somebody who said he loves people and likes to hang out with them, and wants to be with him. I've got lots of friends, trust me. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things like Jesus in Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. For my own individual journey, and, I, and Jesus himself, and I do think all of us, we need those friendships that are about this. Those friendships that are about, I want you to help me get deeply and intimately into a relationship with Jesus. Just like Jesus had them with Peter, James, and John. And I've got to say that my journey in this, I can't tell you how much people, people you know, people that sit here, some you don't know, five or six of them have changed how my relationship with Jesus has gone because they've been there to say, John, it's your relationship, it's you and Jesus. You have to do it. But we are here to do it with you. Nothing changes unless something changes. And, and you may be feeling depressed right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. You may be going, ah, yo. But you know what? A perfect relationship with Jesus is possible, not because of what you can do, but because of what he's done. Because he's the one 
that empowers us and enables us. But no relationship with anybody by definition can only go one way. It has to be two-way. It has to be me saying, I will take the next step. I will do one more thing. I will have one more obedience. Let me just remind you of my list. And perhaps as I remind you, think of yours. The discipline of submission. Where do you need to submit? The discipline of being alone. The discipline of putting Jesus first. I'm so glad God's given me ways of doing this because, you know, Jesus expressed this in Matthew 16 when one of his friends was trying to say to him, don't go to the cross. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Stop trying to make me a people pleaser. I hope I'll never say that to any of the congregation members. The discipline of obedience and the discipline of friendship. Before we leave, we have to celebrate what Jesus has done. Because he, everything I'm saying, he's made possible. You've got communion cups. Now, I, I, I can't wait for the day we don't have to use these cups. Uh, like where we can, but you know what? Go home and have communion at home. Get a few of your friends, have a nice meal together, and then have communion afterwards. But just so that you know, there is bread and there is juice here. The bread's right at the top. Some people don't know that. And the juice, obviously, is underneath. But right now, we are going to pause. And we can say, Lord, we want our relationship with you to be the first. We want it to be central. We want it to be the most defining relationship of every one of our lives. But we have to recognize before we say that or do that, that you've made it possible. That by your body that was broken for us, we can be made whole. By you putting your relationship with your Father in heaven at risk, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You, you've enabled us to be whole. And Lord, we want to celebrate that by, by drinking this juice, we remind ourselves that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, the new covenant in my blood. And so as you eat and drink, Remember that nothing changes until something changes and that God himself desires a deep, intimate relationship with you. And as we eat and drink, Ty and the worship team are going to help us focus and say, Jesus, this is worth it because it's all about you and it's all about me. Let's eat and drink together with gratitude in our hearts to God.